Both Pfizer and Moderna have now applied for an emergency use authorization for their COVID-19 vaccines, setting the stage for vaccines to deploy by the end of the year. We're watching the first indications of the fallout of a Thanksgiving holiday where millions travel to see loved ones. It could spell a dark winter to come. The General Services Administration finally ascertained President-elect Biden's election victory, opening the way for his transition to coordinate with the federal government. And in a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court blocked restrictions on the size of religious gatherings, even in the middle of a pandemic. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. And this week, Dr. Syra Medad, who leads the Special Pathogens Unit for New York City Health and Hospitals, joined me to help answer your COVID-19 questions. Our guest today, as we promised, is Dr. Syra Medad. She leads infectious disease epidemiology for New York City Health and Hospitals, and she is here to help us answer questions that we have about uh, COVID-19 and the ongoing pandemic. Dr. Medad, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. All right, let's jump right in. So Farhana from Houston, Texas asks, my question is what to do about pandemic fatigue? I feel exhausted and just so done with everything. How much of our mental health is at stake and how do we take care of ourselves, especially those of us who are single working parents? That's an excellent question. And we know that this pandemic has not only an impact on our physical well-being if you're infected and changing our complete lifestyle, but certainly the psychological and mental health impact is very, very severe. And so pandemic fatigue is something that many of us are experiencing, even those that are on the front lines that are responding to COVID-19. But I think that the best way to look at it is that because we have a raging pandemic where cases are increasing all over, certainly this is not the time to let down our COVID-19 guard. And so the best thing is for a number of us is having an individual or a group of people that we can talk to, to just feel out, you know, express our feelings. And for me, I have a battle buddy and that actually helps me a lot. So a battle buddy is somebody that I talk to um, on a daily basis or sometimes, uh, you know, a couple of times a week, you know, my schedule is really busy and we just talk about what we're feeling, um, how we can overcome it together and just really talk about just additional strategies. And that has really helped me in particular. And I certainly you know, would share that with with others. So have a group of people that you can talk to um, and then, you know, look around and, and see obviously what's happening and just continue to stay vigilant. And this is something that we're going to get out of soon, you know, with all the great news happening, but certainly not a time to let down our guard. That's right. Sorry. There's a, there's a light at the end of this tunnel. And I know that it's a long, long tunnel and it has been a long tunnel, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. W- one of the things that I've tried to do, and I don't know if it's useful for everybody, but find those activities that I can hold to every day, whether it's, you know, a minute just with my eyes closed, uh, or it's playing Legos with my daughter, or it's doing whatever workout I can do. And then, you know, spaces that allow you to escape, you know, if you jump into a TV show or a movie, they can help you. The whole point of that is to escape from this reality and get to a different one. And sometimes that helps to clear your mind. And then the other thing is uh, the recognition that this is hard and the ability to talk through it being hard and to admit that it's hard and to to feel the pain of that being hard, uh, I think is really critical for folks because without really experiencing it, you know, trying to hold it in and, and carry a stiff upper lip, um, sometimes the, the pain and the challenge of that, you know, comes out in different ways. And so we will come out of this hole, but it's really important for us to do the things right now that we can to uh, to, to rest our minds and to engage in a, in a reality that's not as painful uh, as this one is. As you're thinking about your work, Syrah, what have you seen from some of the healthcare workers on the front lines that they do to protect their mental health, you know, while they're, you know, as you talked about going into battle every day? 
Yeah, this is certainly, you know, uh, I would compare this like a, a wartime scenario in this public health crisis that we're in. And so the first, the battle body system is something that we're all utilizing from really the beginning. Um, everybody has this one person or a couple of people that they go to just to air out some of, you know, their concerns. But I think other things that are being made available that a lot of healthcare workers are utilizing is just general, you know, mental health services that healthcare systems offer. They know this is something that is of a, of a significant issue for frontline healthcare workers. You're actually even seeing um, depression and anxiety skyrocket and not just among, you know, frontline providers, but also children and uh, school age kids. CDC just came out with this publication talking about the emergency room visits among children uh, increasing over the last year uh, by anywhere from 20 to 30 percent. And so there's a lot of services that are being made available both remotely and also, you know, in person uh, through enhanced infection control precautions. And a lot of uh, individuals are utilizing that, which is great. Let's move to a, a question from Smriti uh, in Sterling Heights, Michigan. What will the long-term effect be on minority communities as they recover from the pandemic? And I've talked a lot about this on the pod. And the thing that we have to understand about communities of color is that the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on these communities isn't about the virus itself. It is about all of the circumstances into which the virus has hit. It's about the differential access to everything from clean air and clean water to good schools, to walkable neighborhoods, to healthy foods. And so, you know, we need to understand that this pandemic has uncovered so much of this, I think, for the country and the world to see. And we've got a responsibility not just to deal with the virus, which of course is the most imminent and urgent issue, but also to be asking big picture questions about how we deal with systemic racism and all of the structural realities that too many people have faced. And, you know, I've said this uh, often on this podcast, but we can't just go back to quote unquote normal. We have to build a new normal where uh, the inaccess to healthcare and the environmental injustice and the inaccess to, to high quality schools is not what we accept for anyone in this country, in particular, people of color who have had to experience this for far too long. Uh, Syrah, what, what are your thoughts about the long-term uh, impacts on minority communities uh, as we recover from the pandemic? You know, personally, being part of the public health response, I think one of the biggest, one of the missing pieces in our strategy in terms of responding and tackling COVID-19 is the dire need for wraparound services. And so we know that physically distancing and socially distancing is a privilege that not many people have. And if we're looking at the data, we're seeing that a large number of cases are stemming from the household environments, the people that have COVID-19 going back home, that number actually, the risk of infection increases by tenfold for household contacts if there's somebody living uh, with COVID-19. And so to give you a sense of why we need wraparound services and why other countries have been able to do such a better, a much better job than the United States is because they offer these services, whether it's voluntary or, or free, and we need to have both. These services need to be both free and they need to be voluntary. I've been involved with helping uh, evaluate isolation quarantine hotels. If you told me before COVID-19 started that I was going to help retrofit hotels for caring for, you know, patients that have COVID-19, I would say, get out of here. That doesn't, you know, that, that sounds crazy, uh, but that's the situation we're in. And so I think we need to first, when we talk about wraparound services, uh, we need to offer services where people that can socially distance at home safely, they have an option to go to these isolation quarantine hotels, whether it's the 10-day period because they have COVID-19 or it's the 14-day period because you know they're still waiting for, for testing. So I think we need to have these services um, that is free of charge. 
we see that across America, it's not just in urban settings where people are living in crowded homes. Uh, even for myself, you know, I live in a home where I was able to physically distance, but everybody in my home came down with COVID-19. And so I think it's having these, these options available is really, really uh, important uh, to provide. I'm going to be publishing a book with CDC uh, in the next two weeks that talks about how to stand up isolation quarantine hotels. There's a lot of nuances that go in it, and we know there's a, there's a need for uh, these types of uh, services. And if you also look at some of the requirements in an individual that has COVID-19, the recommendation is that they are they're going to be in a non-shared space with a dedicated bathroom. And not every American household has that luxury uh, of having a dedicated bathroom for an individual that has COVID-19 in their home. So that really speaks to why we need these types of services. The other thing that you're also seeing is meal delivery. And CDC came out with some really great data showing that individuals that have COVID-19 you know, you're seeing a number of them go out in restaurants and grocery shopping because they need to get, you know, they need to put food on the on their table. They need to, you know, they need to eat. And so we need to look at how we can provide free meal delivery services to individuals that are isolating and quarantining. Just stating that you have to isolate or quarantine for a period of time, you know, that's not going to cut it. So we need to sweeten the deal as much as possible. If you look at just a typical milk carton, you know, after opening, they say it, you need to use it within seven days. That's less than the 10 day in isolation period. So this goes to show you we need to provide services for meals uh, and, and the like for individuals to stay put if they are you know, uh, going to isolate or quarantine. Pharmacy delivery, if you look at some of the stats just in the past few years, 48% of Americans are using at least one prescriptional drug uh, in the past 30 days, with 24% actually using three or more prescriptional drugs. And a recent survey showed that a very small percentage of Americans actually get their drugs through meal services, which means close to 80% are going out to the pharmacy and getting their medication. So we need to have services where if they're going to be staying home, we can provide them their medication to their home without them venturing out. Um, And then the last thing is the connection to healthcare services. I think that what you've seen uh, with some of our elected officials that out of abundance of caution, they were hospitalized. We can provide that services to all of Americans. We can't you know, have them go to hospitals out of abundance of caution because they have COVID-19. And so we need to make sure that people have access to healthcare services and they know where to get these healthcare services. And a number of individuals uh, in America don't even have a primary care doctor. And so we need to make sure that through these contact tracing programs that we have, that they're provided with healthcare services, access to them, know where to go and, and provide them with information that they need. So there is a dire need to provide these wraparound services throughout the nation. Some states are doing a better job. Similar to our testing strategy, you know, it's a patchwork approach to many different states. Some states are offering these services free of charge and other states uh, are not at all. And so we certainly need to change that and have a national approach to not just testing and providing uh, PPE to frontline providers, but also for the general public and making sure that we have wraparound services for everybody. Yeah. Faith from St. Paul, Minnesota asked, The CDC recently added pregnancy to the list of conditions that creates an increased risk for severe illness from COVID-19. How much do we know about how universal that risk is to all pregnant women and how much individual health factors either worsen or mitigate that increased risk? Yeah, excellent question. You know, while we've learned so much about COVID-19 over the last 10 months, I think there's still still a lot of uh, pieces of information that we're still learning. And I think, uh, you know, Dr. Saida, as you probably are well aware when it comes to these vulnerable populations and those that are maybe at higher risk. While we have a lot of good information, there's particularly information on the the pregnant uh, population where it's still, you know, abundance of caution. And we know that 
females uh, that are pregnant are at higher risk. We're seeing some data that are coming out uh, that is pretty compelling to show that they are at higher risk for severe illness, for hospitalization. Even children, uh, you know, being born to mothers are at increased risk for contracting COVID-19. But you also have studies that show that it's okay to breastfeed. I think one recent study um, that was published just a couple of months ago shows that the benefits of breastfeeding, but also wearing a mask for a female, you know, you can still balance some of the risk and benefits. I think particularly even for, for me, I delivered in January and that was, you know, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and I was breastfeeding and I actually contracted COVID-19 in end of March, in April. At that time, there was very little information on the you know, transmission of COVID-19 uh, to infants and what the long-term sequelae may look like. Uh, so for me, I had made the decision that I was going to essentially, you know, use enhanced infection control precautions, wear a mask, and then I continued feeding the baby because by that time, by the time I actually got my results that I was COVID positive, uh, very similarly, I was past my, uh, you know, my most infectious period. Um, and, and so those are the decisions that I made, but this is certainly a t- tough decision. So, you know, it's a very, uh, it's a decision that we're making in consultation with our, our providers. Yeah, that's, that's a harrowing experience and I appreciate you sharing it. One of the challenges from a research perspective regarding understanding the the impact of any disease, frankly, but particularly one as new as this one, is how you actually study pregnant people. Because the, the, the challenge is that, of course, we know pregnancy is a really, really high-risk circumstance because you're taking care of two people, not just one, and you're considering the impact on two people, not just one. Um, and so we know we need to know a lot more than we know. The hard part, though, is that you never actually want to do anything that would be risky. So even when it comes to clinical trials and including pregnant women in, in, in clinical trials, there's a real risk there. And so it's hard because we're still dealing with a virus that we don't fully understand. And I know that's hard to hear in 2020, you know, you'd expect that we know everything immediately, but this is a novel virus and science takes time. And so we're constantly iterating what we know and how we know it and studying vulnerable populations like pregnant people, it makes it particularly hard. And so this new evidence from the CDC and and, and others based on other studies is compelling. But what I think folks should understand is that the same the same things that we are doing to protect ourselves generally from COVID-19 are the things that pregnant people should be doing to protect themselves uh, from COVID-19. And so limiting any sort of interaction, physical distancing, wearing a mask. I mean, I think these are particularly pressing if you're talking about a high-risk potential person. And we know now that pregnancy is a high-risk situation. And so um, there's very little that's different about what we can do to protect ourselves if if we're pregnant or if we're not. But um, those things ought to be applied in a in, in a more stringent way. Um, and given where we are with this pandemic and the uh, nearly unbridled spread that we're experiencing, that should be true for everybody, to be frank. Mark asks, what is the best way to ensure that when people start experiencing symptoms that they understand that they might be related to COVID and act accordingly instead of assuming it's a cold or allergy? Yeah, so the, you know, this is where we need to do a couple of things. First, local contact is also really, really important. So if you have very high rates of community transmission in your area, it's always good to assume that you may have COVID-19 if you're feeling symptomatic and to ensure that you're staying home, calling your provider and doing all the necessary steps that we talk about in terms of those that may think that they have COVID-19, including getting testing. And so I think it's always good to operate out of the abundance of caution, especially since we have so high levels of community transmission all throughout the United States. And so because we, we have some very common signs and symptoms of 
influenza-like illness, with COVID-like illness, with seasonal allergies, it is very hard to distinguish between the two. And this is where testing is so important. And if you're living in an area where you have a good testing capability, so particularly here in New York State where you know we're doing the highest number of testing per capita, you know we're actually advising people that even if you are not symptomatic, uh, even if you're not high risk, just go ahead and get a COVID-19 test um, periodically. Uh, and so if you're living in a jurisdiction that allows you to get tested often, I certainly encourage that. But if you certainly are symptomatic, if you feel as if you have COVID-19 or you're not sure, testing is really, really important and making sure that you're staying home um, and um, quarantining appropriately. Yeah. And basically, if you're having any viral symptoms, um, meaning you're having a runny nose or a sore throat or a cough, you, you should assume that it's COVID until proven otherwise, right? And and the reason why is because the risk of spreading something like this is serious and um, you need to protect against that risk. And so it's really important to protect yourself. Here's the other point. We ask people to wear masks because the point at which you may be spreading this virus occurs before the point at which the virus may be causing symptoms in you, right? That is pre-symptomatic spread. And so the important thing here is that whether you're experiencing symptoms or you're not, it's critical that if you're around other folks who are not a part of your immediate bubble, that you are wearing your mask to protect from spreading the illness. And so, you know, before you get symptoms, make sure you're wearing a mask. And after you have symptoms, make sure that you are quarantining and, and getting a test to understand exactly what, uh, what is happening here. But the most important thing we can do, right, is follow the same protocols uh, around wearing your mask, around physical distancing, around washing your hands and, 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 and sanitizing uh, to, to protect yourself and others. So as COVID cases and data increase, are deaths and infection rates still disproportionately affecting black and brown communities uh, as much as six months ago? So, you know, if you're looking at some of the data, certainly they're still at higher risk. We are still seeing cases higher among these particular populations, uh, but we're also seeing increases in cases among the younger population and potentially the youth uh, driving a lot of the cases that we're, we're seeing uh, today. So, you know, I think that states are doing a much better job in trying to report more information on subsets, um, on ethnicities and, and, and backgrounds. But, you know, I think there, there's still a lot more to do on that. Yeah. One of the things that is happening is that the early phases of this pandemic hit cities hardest. And we know uh, that cities are far more likely to be home to black and brown communities than rural communities are. What's happening now, though, is that it's spreading all over the country. And so as the virus has spread into more rural communities that are far more likely to be predominantly white, you're seeing some of the overall numbers change. That being said, even in rural communities, if you are black or brown in a rural community, your probability of getting sick and dying is still higher. And so the, the national numbers are starting to change a bit because of where the virus is now spreading the fastest. But even within communities that are predominantly white with very few black and brown folks, you're still seeing higher risks among black and brown folks in those communities. Got a question here from Carl. Now that the election is over and a new Biden-Harris administration will soon take over, is there anything that can be done to alter the messaging around public health to make measures more palatable to people? This is a really important point because I think sometimes in public health, we message with a smile and an arm wave and a, a big twinkle in our teeth. And sometimes we're not so great at demonstrating that these are hard things to do and they are a challenge. And um, what we're asking people to do is really hard. There's been a whole conversation 
about the importance of risk mitigation, uh, not just risk elimination. And, you know, that's why some of the early advice around, you know, not going outside, not going to the park was not great advice, right? Because if you're telling people to stay physically distant and then just not go outside and you're telling them that the pandemic is going to last 12 to 18 months, that becomes an untenable situation really fast and people throw out all of the messaging. And so I think there are a couple of things here. Number one, we've got to be honest about the pain of this. And, you know, Thanksgiving, for example, is one of my favorite holidays. And I talked about this on the pod a couple of weeks ago. It sucks not to have a complete Thanksgiving this year. It really, really sucks. And at the same time, it's really important because COVID-19 sucks worse. And so I, I think that we, we've got a new administration and I know that they're thinking really hard about how to make sure that we're offering outlets for folks to be and do as, as people are, uh, while at the same time being as safe uh, as we possibly can. Sarah, what are your thoughts? No, I, I definitely agree. I think we have learned a lot in this particular pandemic, and I think we can have better um, hyperlocal responses. The harm reduction model, I think, has been really, really well communicated by a number of people, uh, especially some of my, my colleagues. But I think that we just need to do a better job of providing the nuances. I think that a lot of these you know, restrictions that you're seeing today are not based on science. And to give you an example, you know, putting uh, curfews at, at 10 p.m., you know, the virus doesn't go away at 10 p.m. And what you may be driving is while you're closing down bars, you're having more people congregate indoors and in homes. And so I think really making sure that we're providing a guidance based on science and then telling them why we're saying this. So if you're having a curfew, tell them why that's important and what is that based off of. Similarly, in here in New York City, if you're closing down schools, letting them know why you're closing down schools and not having, uh, you know, closing down restaurants and, and indoor dining. So I think that there's really, it's really important to provide good communication based on science, based on facts, and where you're getting this information from. I think we owe it to, to people to, 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 for them to make better informed uh, decisions, because certainly, as you've mentioned, we can't have where, you know, you're going to just stay home the entire time. That just, it's not going to work. And so we can apply some of these harm reduction techniques uh, for us to create a new normal that we're all living in right now. That's, um, that's, I think, really, really important advice to heed. And, um, you know, for, for everyone out there, I know there's a lot of sort of fear about how far to go. And it's really important to do the basic things to protect yourself and your family, like wearing masks and insisting on that. But we've got to be able to do it for the long term. And so I think it's it's less important to obsess over the the details. Like we were all, you know, individually wiping down every grocery bag when uh, when when this pandemic started. And more important to focus on the, the the fundamentals, the basic things right. You just make sure you have hand sanitizer where you go, make sure you're wearing a mask and, you know, try to limit the the size of your pod. And, you know, one place where I see this happening sometimes is folks like, yeah, we made a pod and then the pod like rose until it's just everyone you wanted to hang out with. And those are the places where you, you might want to rethink that, right? And you say, okay, well, who is it that is essential for us to be hanging out with? And how do we make sure that we're doing this in a safe way where we're not just doing everything that we did, but giving it different names to make ourselves feel better, right? So it's like, focus on the fundamentals, ask yourself, what are the things that are the highest risk for spread, minimize those things. And then within that, those bounds where you're like sort of checking in, try to do the things that make you human and make you whole. Um, this is a hard situation for everybody. And, you know, my wife is a physician and I'm an epidemiologist. And still there are always conversations that we have about, the risks that we're taking on. And so there's no perfect way to do this and also be human. But there is a good way to do this, and that's what we're all after. And, and risk is not uniform. You know, certain people are certainly at a much higher risk for a severe outcome for hospitalization. So I think this is something that needs to be done at an individual level. So even if you're thinking of merging families, it's not just about merging 10 people. It's about looking at who is in each one of these families, if they're going to be part of your social bubble, and then knowing that some individuals are at higher risk. 
and recalculating, you know, are you, is, is it worth taking that particular risk? Everybody is trying to trim down and, and cut corners as much as possible to, to make it seem as if, okay, I'm doing the right thing, but, you know, I can still go about and do X, Y, and Z. So really just thinking through and prioritizing those activities that mean the most to us and then applying some of these harm reduction techniques to really try to reduce our risk as much as possible. I think the, the best analogy is a Swiss cheese model. I think it's just been so well uh, communicated to, to the public through news outlets. And I think it's, 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 a, it's a great model because it shows you that one, you know, one intervention or one layer is not foolproof. It's not perfect. And so adding on a number of layers on top of it really helps you know, with the overall reducing risk of, of contracting and, and spreading COVID-19, almost kind of this, this dose reducing strategy that has been proposed. Yeah. Melissa says, I heard some people downplay the disease by saying people who come into the hospital with stab wounds or in car accidents and happen to test positive for COVID but die from other causes are contributing to a higher death uh, rate, inflating the numbers. I don't believe that. But what do you say to people, to those people? The point that I'd make is that, well, you know, unless we think that a higher number of people in almost all the hospitals in the entire country are coming in with stab wounds and car accidents, um, then that's just an implausible explanation. Hospitals are filling up all over the country. And the reason why is because of COVID-19. There is no other way to explain it. And so um, this isn't about hospitals playing games because no hospital wants to be with a number of beds or their ICU almost to the brim as we head into the, the highest risk months generally, right, independent of COVID-19. So it's just not a really great explanation. And I've heard that too. And um, it's not a compelling argument when you actually just step back and ask, why are all our hospitals filling up? Uh, it's not because of stab wounds or, or car accidents. It's because of COVID-19. Sarah? No, and we have an inclusion exclusion criteria in healthcare systems where we abide by that. The other thing, if you want even more assurance, you know, some jurisdictions, uh, in, in fact, say that uh, individuals that pass away to actually test them within 48 hour time frame for COVID-19 and flu during this time to see if they actually uh, succumb due to COVID-19. Um, and so that's giving you another layer of assurance in some of these jurisdictions that even individuals that, that pass away, they're still getting tested to see is it truly from COVID-19 or is it some, from something else? Yeah. This question is related from Nicole in Richmond, Virginia. What can I do as a citizen slash survivor to help? Anything else I'm involved with, the volunteer positions are clear, but with the pandemic, there seems to be less lay people can do, aside from just speaking out like a broken record about my experience, uh, to be involved in a solution. And um, the reason I thought this was related is just because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I, I want to be clear that when you talk about misinformation, oftentimes we're, we're sort of blunt about it and we just think about everybody as being a misinformer. And actually, I think that there are two two groups. There are the misinformed and then there are the misinformants, right? Um, the president of the United States, clearly a misinformant, right? And then you have people who are tricked by these misinformants to listen to what they have to say. And the thing about the way you deal with misinformed people versus misinformants is very different, right? Misinformed people tend to be uh, misinformed because they are getting information from people that tends to uh, speak to a particular underlying fear or insecurity that they have uh, about a, a given situation. And I think that, you know, when you have somebody who's motivated by fear to believe something that is untrue and not substantiated by facts, yelling the fact at them does not usually make them less scared. Um, and so the best way I think to deal with misinformed people is to bring the information, but also bring your empathy and bring a listening ear and ask for not just what they think, but why they think what they think. 
And I think that's something that people can really do very effectively to to really change uh, a conversation for for a lot of people. And then there are the misinformants. And these folks are usually people who have some kind of gain on the back end, right? Donald Trump had a clear political gain in uh, misinforming the American public about this virus uh, because, of course, he was up for re-election and wanted to substantiate why he hadn't actually failed 250 plus thousand families uh, who are now a little bit less whole because of his failure. And then you've got folks who want to sell you the alternative to whatever it is, the treatment, the vaccine, et cetera. And these folks need to be engaged with with force and uh, with the truth. Sarah, in, in your experience, what, what can lay people do uh, to, to be helpful when it comes to the when it comes to the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think what you mentioned is really certainly spot on and certainly trying to make sure we educate people with the right information. There's so much bad information and junk science out there that people are unfortunately believing. Um, we know that misinformation, disinformation, not only obviously undermines our public health response and, and uh, you know, help basically is propagating the pandemic even more because people are engaging in risky behaviors uh, because they think that, you know, maybe the pandemic is a the hoax. But on top of that, it's also uh, increasing people's risk of contracting COVID-19, dying from it, and being hospitalized. So you have some studies that were done early on, for example, in the first three months of this pandemic, you know, nearly 600 people died because of misinformation and thousands more people were hospitalized because they were believing in information that put them at higher risk. And so I think every single person plays a role in this pandemic. And so certainly we want to make sure that people go to sources of information that's credible and reliable. And I think one of the best ways for me in particular to help kind of evaluate where we're getting this information and then making sure that we're providing good information to people is evaluating it through this kind of five W approach. You know, who is saying it? Is it an individual or is it a federal website, for example? Why are they saying it? You know, is it because they're trying to provide public health information or is it for self-gain? You know, and uh, who's doing it? What are they doing? Um, so the kind of those, these five W's, right? So go through the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and answer these questions. And that kind of helps tells you, is this information accurate, up to date? Is it based on science and facts? Uh, and, and, you know, pr provide good, credible uh, information that way. The other thing that I'll mention is besides providing good information is there is a dire need for more contact tracers around the United States. Um, you know, I, I, I play multiple different hats within my healthcare system. So not only am I part of the healthcare delivery response for our service lines, but also with the contact tracing program that we have for New York City. And we have thousands of contact tracers, but there's always a need for more contact tracers, not just here, but all around the United States. You know, we have probably a little bit more than 50,000 contact tracers and we should have 300,000. And so a lot of places are hiring. So certainly if you want to uh, help um, look at your local health department, see if they're hiring contact tracers and, and see if this is something that uh, you wanna do. That's that's great, and I, that's a really really good point, Sarah. All right, so um, here's a question from Kristen, uh, and and something I really um, you know I appreciate the question here. Should I still be washing my produce with soap and thoroughly rinsing it, washing my milk containers and disinfecting the bags of frozen peas I buy? I'm super tired of doing it, and they say that the virus is more transmissible through the air than on things, but I want to do all I can to stay healthy. Sarah, yeah, excellent question, and you know. I've gotten this question many, many times. And so I think the first is when we're trying to wash our produce, this is not just because of COVID-19. This is just good 
hygiene, right? We, we want to make sure that we're washing um, items that we're consuming, especially produce and, and when it comes to meat, thoroughly cooking it and things like that. But really, it all goes back to basics. In all the different epidemics and pandemics that I responded to, it always goes back to basic infection control. And you can obviously add on from there and add on additional enhanced precautions. But as long as we're, you know, we're washing our hands and, and we are being uh, very mindful of not, you know, touching our, our mucous membranes, you know, wiping down milk cartons and things like that. I personally don't do that when I go grocery shopping. You know, I just make sure that, you know, I'm washing my hands and, and when I am taking something out, I have it in a separate container, for example. So those are the, the layers that I add for mitigation. Certainly if it makes you feel better in a sense, uh, then certainly do it. I think the other option is, you know, leaving certain items out uh, for a period of time and, and then, you know, using it uh, afterwards. Uh, but we'll love to hear your thoughts, uh, Dr. Sayla. I know this is, a, this is a big topic that we've all gotten. Uh, even my contact tracers, one of the questions I often get um, is, can I wear clothing that's antimicrobial, you know, repellent and, and, and spray, disinfecting spray on myself? And, and so we have to have this whole conversation of, of why that's not necessary. Yeah. The, the highest probability of transmission is in uh, the air. Now, there's a theoretical risk of transmission via the surfaces that we touch, but it is extremely low. The usual circumstance is that someone with the virus has shed virus into the air in tiny little particles that someone else then breathes. And the reason why masks are so important is because they stop the person who breathed the particles into the air from doing so, and they stop you from breathing those particles in, right? And, and so a perfect, theoretically impossible to get the virus approach to living your life would mean that you just wouldn't go to the grocery store anyway, let alone you know, wipe down all the stuff that you got in the grocery store. And so uh, what I try to do is, you know, I, I sanitize my hands before I get to a grocery store. I, of course, wear my mask uh, the whole time in the grocery store. I go and I, I buy all of my, my groceries. And then I, I come back and before I, you know, touch anything in my car, I will sanitize again. Uh, and then I'll take my stuff home. Now, I don't wipe down my groceries, I, although my family was doing that early on in the pandemic. Um, given where the evidence is about the, the the risk of transmission, that risk is so low that it doesn't substantiate doing that. And then, you know, when you're talking about like frozen peas and stuff, that there's actually, it's impossible that you're going to get it from frozen peas because they're frozen, right? And the virus is not going to survive on a frozen surface. So, um, so you know, th those kinds of things uh, apply as well. So, um, that is a, a good question, but I think so long as folks are being really thoughtful about cleaning and washing their hands, which is the you know the the way that you usually take something from a surface to your uh, mucous membranes where it can then get in your body, you're doing ninety eight percent of the work, right? And that's not a don't hold me to that number, but it's a, a very high percentage of the work of, of protecting yourself from surfaces. We'll be back with more questions and answers after this break. We're back, and now to the questions on everyone's mind about those vaccines. We've got a question from Catherine in Gross Point Farms, Michigan. If the vaccines now almost ready for distribution must be stored at very cold temperatures, what happens if they are not properly stored and administered anyway? Would there be side effects? Has this been studied? So I want to be clear about why you need such a cold temperature. Uh, these are what's called mRNA vaccines. So mRNA is the cousin to DNA. DNA is the book that codes for all of the different machinery in a cell. And the way that mRNA works is that it's what DNA gets translated into to go out there and do stuff in a cell. And these mRNA vaccines are a little piece of mRNA that codes for 
uh, a small piece of the virus, not a part that would cause any illness, but a small piece that your immune system can recognize as being foreign and then form an immune response to that then can be called on if and when you're exposed to the virus. Now, mRNA is a really touchy chemical because it's not meant to stick around in the body for a long time. It's meant to be used to translate into something and then go away. Uh, and so body's, the body's really good at destroying it. It's only stable in very particular circumstances. And so keeping it cold keeps it stable. And so if it were not to, to be kept cold, uh, what would likely happen is the mRNA would would do what we call denaturing, meaning it would just start to you know, kind of go bad like the, the way that um, milk spoils. It would just sort of spoil. Um, the different building blocks of it would start coming apart. And and so it would end up being all of the, you know, the, the sort of parts of mRNA, but it wouldn't be the mRNA code that actually codes something in the body. And so it's highly unlikely that there would be particular side effects because mRNA is just made out of a bunch of building blocks that uh, that exist in your body anyway. My understanding is that it hasn't been explicitly studied. Uh, Sarah, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, no, I think you covered all the bases. And, and certainly we, we want to try to avoid this wastage in this particular scenario. And that's why, you know, you're hearing folks say, you know, we have to bring people to the vaccine versus the vaccine to the people. And that's a very, that's a very different strategy than what we've been doing for immunizations, where we have to make sure that you have a good number of people lined up to get the vaccine, because you know, obviously once you are utilizing it, you want to avoid wastage. And so it becomes much more difficult where now you need to have a system set up with enhanced infection control precautions with social distancing, but a good number of people there to get the doses um, and so there's a lot of thought going into how to operationalize the whole campaign. And that's where rubber meets the road. And, and being in a healthcare system myself, I can tell you the planning um, has started for, for a while, but there's still some really key information that we're missing. But everyone's trying to develop a framework of how to move about uh, and operationalizing the COVID-19 vaccines with extra cold stone um, storage requirements. Yeah. And I think I think you're, you're hitting on a, the most important side effect, which is it won't be effective. And someone who has been vaccinated uh, will be out there without the immune response that we'd expect from somebody who is is vaccinated. And so the point that you made is a really good one. You know, I, I ran a health department and one of the big mistakes that we often make in uh, government and bureaucracy is that we design the bureaucracy around the bureaucracy rather than around the, around the people that we want to serve. And if we're going to do this right, it means we've got to take it to the people and we've got to build around the lives that they lead, particularly in a moment when we've been asking them to very much change their lives as a function of the pandemic itself. And so I'm not worried so much about side effects for this vaccine from everything that we're seeing. There has been a very rigorous process around testing them to make sure that they're safe and effective. And vaccine spoilage isn't going to cause side effects aside from the fact that, you know, you have people who would be getting a vaccine that wouldn't actually have the effect that we intend. And so um, that's the most important thing that we can uh, adjust around. And uh, we've got to make sure that all of the infrastructure around solving these problems is thought through and engaged with. And questions like this are answered because, you know, one of the main issues that we have right now is trust given the politics that we've seen over the past several months. And so I, I think that the rigor of these studies is important. And then the rigor for the delivery is is critical as well. The one thing I'll actually add, you know, we, we spent billions of dollars in obviously developing COVID-19 vaccines. And we have so many different candidates in, in the pipeline, uh, which is amazing. But zero dollars has been spent on the actual community outreach, the grassroots educational campaign that needs to go around uh, a robust, massive vaccination campaign. And, and that's where we really need to start investing more time and resources and really the financial backing, because this is, this is a huge undertaking for public health and healthcare systems. 
Jacob has asked a question about how are large-scale vaccine trials set up? How do Pfizer and Moderna ensure that they get a statistically representative sample? How is the data analyzed afterwards? Yeah, excellent question. So, you know, these are all voluntary trials and they have thousands of people enrolled from throughout the world. So this is not just one geographical location where you have individuals. These are people from throughout the world participating in these. Uh, they are uh, looking and they have individuals um, from the full spectrum from when it comes to the age groups and, and backgrounds. The whole profile has not been released to the public. And so we know that there is a good chunk of individuals from a diverse background, but in terms of how many is something that I think once data is released through um, FDA, that's something that you know we'll be able to have better eyes on. Uh, but there, there is an entire process that goes along with it. And we know that trials follow a scientific process. And so this is not the first time that we're embarking on these massive trials. You know, We've gone through many different vaccine developments before and, and therapeutics, and they're all following a scientific process here. I think the Operation Warp Speed is something that gets people tripped up on uh, just because of the name, but certainly I think it's following a rigorous protocol that we have established. You have multiple different committees and, and boards. You have the data you know, monitoring board that is helping evaluate you know, the information coming in. You have multiple processes within the FDA so it's not just once the application is submitted and it's just one group that's evaluating it. There's you know two or three different layers within that that goes through that whole approval process. So I'm certainly very confident uh, once we have a, a vaccine that's made available once um, FDA releases it. Yeah, and I, I want to speak a little bit quickly to um, just how you know you have a representative group. So uh, this is going to get real wonky here for a minute, but I promise I'll bring it back. There is this uh, statistical form of magic called the central limit theorem. And with the central limit theorem is is basically the the law of large numbers uh, that tells us that we are going to get to an even distribution of all of the characteristics on either side of a trial. So of course, when you're setting up a trial, you have one arm of the trial that gets the vaccine and one arm of the trial that gets a placebo. And you want to make sure that there's no difference between them that would explain the differences in outcomes. And to understand the central limit theorem, think about flipping a coin. If you flip a coin twice, right? You know, you might get one heads, one tails, you might get two heads, or you might get two tails. And to be quite frank, you're evenly likely to get, you know, two heads or two tails than you are to get one heads, one tails, even though you know that your chances of getting one heads and one tails is exactly the same. And so if you flip a coin two times, those chances are what they are. But if you flip a coin a hundred times, then the probability that you get all heads or all tails is infinitesimally small. The real probability is that you're going to get 50-50 or really, really close to 50-50. And so if you're randomly assigning people to one arm of the study or another, you know that because of that same, uh, that same central limit theorem, that same truth about how likely things are to even out on either side, that you're going to get a pretty even distribution. Now, there are some groups that are not allowed into the first set of studies. So for example, children, we don't put into the first set of studies. But the minute we know the, the, the outcomes of the first study show safety and efficacy, then they do studies on children and other sensitive populations. Because of course, we want to make sure it is safe in the overall population before um, we give it to particularly sensitive uh, or protected populations like kids or pregnant people. So um, that's a bit of wonkiness, but the whole point here is to say that kind of uh, clinical trial, when you analyze it and you see differences across the likelihood of having gotten uh, COVID-19 in the, um, the group that got the vaccine versus the group that just got salt water, the placebo, you know that it's because of the, the vaccine, not just because of random chance. The, the last question also about the vaccine is why do 
you need two doses. And I want to try and see if I can explain a little bit about your body's mechanics when it comes to foreign uh, biological pathogens. So your body is an amazing, your immune system is a really, really amazing thing. If you took all of the immune cells in your body and you put them all together, they'd be an organ the size of your brain. But we don't really think about it that way because they're all floating in one cell or another cell uh, in your blood. And the way that your immune system works is that it generates a whole mixture of different uh, antibodies that are floating around in your body all the time, right? That don't necessarily code for any one pathogen, but could. And if a pathogen were to get in your body, um, the pathogen would stick to one of these antibodies, right? It would stick to one of these coded antibodies that are you know, created at random. And once that happens, it triggers a whole set of pathways in your body to amplify an immune response, right? And so you know, what we're doing when we're introducing uh, this mRNA is uh, having your body code for something that is not part of the body itself that would trigger this kind of amplified immune response. And then the immune response would be then set up so that we've created a whole bunch of antibodies that key to that one antibody that triggered the immune response that would then, of course, identify that thing that tripped it off, right? That foreign pathogen that tripped it off. And the reason we do two doses is because you basically want to get as many pathways to producing an immune response as you possibly can. And by doing it not once, but twice, you are creating a supplemental set of pathways, right? And so uh, it's just a stronger immune response and it's a more robust immune response than, you know, a one dose. Sarah? Yeah, no, I think you've summed it up very well. I think the only thing that I'll mention just in terms of the operation component of it is once you get the first vaccine, you have to use the same manufacturer. So if you're going to get the, you know, the Pfizer, uh, you have to get the second dose of Pfizer uh, again. So you can't switch different uh, manufacturers of the vaccine. So that that is something that particularly for healthcare systems, we are considering because if we need a two dose, then we need to make sure that individuals that are coming in for the first dose obviously have a second dose available at the uh, interval that's needed and uh, making sure that that's uh, available once they come back uh, for that second dose. And so it's doubling up on what's currently available in terms of the vaccine capacity. Yep. There's, there's a lot I've heard about, um, you know, which of the vaccines should I get? And I, I want folks to recognize that you should get the one that's available and a public health official tells you you should get, right? Because there are going to be uh, different and infinitesimally different responses to these vaccines. But the, the bigger picture here is you want to get vaccinated as soon as a public health official tells you uh, that you and your family should get vaccinated. And so I wouldn't quibble too much about which of the vaccines you get. I would be focused on uh, getting the one that you can get fastest. And so, um, but you got to make sure that the second dose is, is of the same type so that you're capturing the same kind of um, immune response. That was Dr. Saira Medad, uh, and she is an infectious disease epidemiologist at New York Health and Hospitals. Thank you so much for joining us and helping clarify uh, some of these really important questions. Thank you for having me. That's it for us. Hope it was helpful. Since holiday shopping is now in full swing, check out our new America Dissected merch. There's a Science Always Wins sweatshirt, t-shirt, and hat. Head over to crooked.com store and shop now. Though there's a light at the end of the tunnel, it looks like the next few weeks might be a bit hard. I'm wishing you and your family safety and good health. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takayasuzawa and Alex Ugiera. 
Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.